Open your Bibles with me to Job 33. Job 33. It does have a number of verses, but I believe we can get through it quickly because I want you to see the forest of Job 33 rather than all the trees, though most of the trees will be mentioned. Job 33. When we look at the book of Job, you want to remember the overall outline of it. And I say some of these things, not for those of you who already know what I'm about to say, but for those that don't know it yet, and by repetition is how we learn. The outline of the book of Job is there are two chapters that describe all the bad things the Lord sent into his life to prove to Satan that he was a just man. Then there are 29 chapters of him arguing back and forth with three of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who took their turns to accuse Job of secret sins and of being a hypocrite, and God was judging him for those secret sins. In chapter 32, Elihu is introduced to us as a young man who has attended to the discussions of these four older men, but had chosen not to speak his opinion because they were older and he showed respect for age, which the Bible does teach. Though there was no Bible in that day, because we understand the book of Job to be the oldest book in the Bible, and to have been written before Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's no mention of the nation of Israel in the book of Job. There's no mention of the law of God given in the book of Job. There is mention of a flood. So we understand that he came between the flood and Mount Sinai. Chapter 32 introduced this young man to us. Chapter 33 is going to be his first remarks to Job. It's the chapter we're going to look at. And then in chapters 34 through 37, Elihu continued to defend God and instruct Job about what his attitude ought to be. In chapter 38, the Lord Himself takes up. And for four chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, the Lord Himself challenges Job by His own means to humble himself before him and admit that everything God did to him was fair and right and better than he deserved. Then in chapter 42, we have a conclusion of the book where Job humbly repents in dust and ashes, puts his hand over his mouth and says, I will say no more. And the Lord tells him how he can make peace with him and for his three friends. And the Lord blesses Job, restores him, and gives him double of everything he had in the beginning. So ends the book of Job. But you want to get used to that outline so that when you look at any chapter in the book of Job, you first of all go see, is this Job speaking, or is this one of his three friends? Is this Elihu speaking, or the Lord speaking? Elihu wrote the book. You can tell that from two verses that are in the middle of Job chapter 32, and it's always amusing to look at the New King James Version or other translations like it that like to use quotation marks, and they put quotation marks around verses 15 and 16 of chapter 32, which are an interjection by the person writing the book. But they don't care. They haven't studied. They don't know their Bibles. And they they just got to sell something and get it to market as fast as they can so that they can make copyrighted profits for Thomas Nelson. Remember, anybody can publish this one. So they take this one, cheat off its name, change it enough for the U.S. to give it a copyright, and then they can publish it and make a lot of money. But they're so ignorant of it that when they get into the middle of chapter 32 and Elihu is explaining of what it looked like at the campfire when he came on so strong, they put it all in quotation marks and just ruin the middle part of chapter 32. But that's just a little side benefit that you didn't pay for this morning. So we remember that outline as we look at this book. Job, first of all, had a great attitude. For two chapters, he responded perfectly. He worshipped. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But with those three miserable comforters who called themselves and thought themselves friends, They frustrated him into defending himself against their false charges. So he ends up in self-righteousness and justifying himself 
and blaming God for picking on him too hard because these three friends just pushed him too much. Elihu, in chapter 32, already states his opposition against those three men, and his advice to Job is going to be very different. It's a lofty preface. When you look at chapter 32, and we love Job chapter 32 because of what it says about Elihu and what Elihu says himself, it's a lofty preface, but chapters 33 through 37 justify that preface. Your goal, your goal right now with me, in a few minutes together as we go through this chapter, is to get much more than the history lesson of something said around a campfire among five men. Your goal should be to see God's methods of how He deals with men and to improve your reception of those methods of how God deals with men. We don't just want the history lesson. We don't just want the intellectual exercise. We don't just want the knowledge of the book of Job. We want to see how God oftentimes deals with men and how we can benefit from those dealings better than we have in the past. And by the grace of God and His coordination of all things, it fits so well with the sermon that I just ended that spoke of personal devotions. Because it's personal devotions that gets some of these benefits of how God deals with men. There's other studies that we've made on the book of Job, and there's studies on Job chapter 32 that are available on our website. Okay, first thing I want to show you is how we can divide this chapter up. And if you mark in your Bible, this may help you see the sections. In verses 1 through 7, Elihu reasoned with Job on behalf of God. He simply introduces himself and says, Job, I'm going to take God's place and I'm going to answer the questions that you've had about him. In verses 8 through 13, which is section 2, Elihu reproves Job that God is greater than man and can do anything he wants. The third section is verses 14 through 18, that in spite of not being accountable to man, God is very kind to help man by instructing him in the night. Verses 14 through 18. Verses 19 through 22, God helps men by afflicting them with troubles, physical troubles, as Job was afflicted. Verses 23 through 25, God helps men by sending them ministers with the truth, Elihu being the minister sent by God to help Job in spite of those other three men. Verses 26 through 28, God is merciful and will forgive men that repent. Verses 29 and 30, God often uses these ways that we're going to look at briefly to help and revive men. And then Elihu closes out this particular chapter by offering Job the justifying wisdom that he needs, unlike his friends. I know that's a lot. When you go to eight points on something like that, people get confused after about the third one. But let me put it this way. After an introduction and ignoring the conclusion... Elihu is going to tell Job about four different ways that God deals with men, and he's going to say God oftentimes deals this way with men. And my ambition and desire for preaching this to you is that we would become more receptive, impressionable, and attentive and alert to God dealing with us these ways. Section number 1, verses 1 through 7. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. If thou canst answer me, Set thy words in order before me. Stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. 
the first section. Verse 1, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all my words. Elihu had already introduced himself in the previous chapter, and now he says, Wherefore, based on that introduction, here I go, Job, because I have some things I want to say to you, and I want you to listen to me. This kind of interaction between men, even a young man to an older man, is perfectly appropriate. Elihu is the better speaker in the whole book other than God himself. And so this is appropriate to say, you should listen to me because I have some good things to say to you. And so the young man says that to Job. He had an inspired message. He said that in chapter 32. He was angry at the three men for accusing Job without an explanation. And he had been respectful and waited around for 29 chapters. You ought to give him a chance to speak by this time. And so Elihu's rather bold in this first verse when he says, I pray thee, Hear my speeches and hearken to all my words. Behold, verse 2, Now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. Elihu had waited, he hadn't said anything, and he was about to burst as he described himself like a wine bottle ready to blow its top because he wanted to say some things to justify God and to protect Job from his friends. We do not want to open our mouths to begin to say something unless we're prepared to finish that discourse. And Elihu was well prepared. And we want to ask people to always remember that we want all of our words taken into account, not just one or two of them. When someone picks on a few of your words, they're a scorner, and the Bible condemns them. And when we hear God speak to us, either reading His Word or having it preached to us, we want to hearken to all His words. All of his words, every one of them. Verse 3, My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart. My lips shall utter knowledge clearly. Elihu, as an example for us, was committed to honest and true discourse. So he says, My words shall be of the uprightness of my heart. My heart is right, and I will speak according to my heart. I will not be influenced by politics or trying to make you feel better unjustly at all. Or condemn you unjustly like your three friends have. As Solomon taught us, we should have certain words of truth in our mouths. And we shouldn't be ashamed to call them truth. This is the truth, buddy. This is the truth, friend. This is what the Bible says. And so Elihu was that way. And we've said for many, many years that all young men should be grounded solidly in the book of Job, especially the chapters about Elihu, and especially chapters 32 and 33. Elihu did not speak like Job's friends with philosophical sophistry, but plain explanations. He just states it very well. And we want to use great plainness of speech, especially New Testament pastors, because that's what the Bible tells us to in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is still the introduction. Elihu just setting Job up for what he's going to tell him. Verse 4, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Job had sought a meeting with God, so Elihu was here speaking for God. He was created person just like Job was. Job shouldn't be afraid of him. And the Lord had brought him to him. The Lord had created him for Job. Elihu wasn't God himself. He was just a creature like Job and the four older men, should allow him an opportunity since God had sent him. And we believe that about all of our arrangements, all the dots. You know, when Joel, a moment ago, was giving a testimony about God using a particular man that he had never worked for in his previous employer to help him with two jobs, I called him an angel. Because the Lord does interact in our affairs and bless us at times. And in this case, he sent Elihu for the sake of Job. Now he says in verse 5, If thou canst answer me, if you think I'm wrong and you can defend yourself and overthrow the doctrine I'm about to give you, then set your words in order before me and stand up. Show yourself a man and, and try to overthrow what I'm about to share with you. Now that's pretty strong. This young man was confident. And we want our young men to be confident in the Word of God. Elihu was directly inspired. He didn't have a single book of the Bible to appeal to. We have a 66-book divine library that we can appeal to, memorize, learn, categorize, and put in our minds, hearts, and in our lips. 
so that we have certain words to speak to men. Elihu wasn't interested in any mealy-mouthed, feeling-based opinions of Job. He wanted words said in order that were reasonable, logical, and could overthrow what he was about to say, but he knew that Job didn't have any of those because he had just listened to Job for a number of chapters. Verse 6, Behold, Job, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. You know, you wanted to have a chat with your Maker. Well, He has sent me. I also am formed out of the clay. You wanted this, now you've got it. You can go back to several places, and I'm not going to make this extra long by showing you verses in the previous discourses where Job said, you know, Lord, come down and, and talk to me. You know, if you, if you were more like a man and I could speak to you, I would defend myself to you. And Elihu has heard those statements, and so he said, here I am. I'm inspired from the Lord, because he said that in chapter 32, and I'm here, just like you, to give you God's answer. Behold, in verse 7, My terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Job had said that he was terrified by God and by all these events that had happened in his life, and so it was very difficult for him in this situation. You know, when you read chapters 1 and 2, about the messengers coming one after another in his whole life and world being turned upside down, you can imagine that Job was a little intimidated by God. But he gets pretty mouthy in his self-righteousness because his friends aggravated him to it and just kept pushing him to it. And all the way through the end of the to the book, you'll find out that God was very unhappy with those three friends and he flat out told them, you know, I will not accept you three guys. You can offer all the sacrifices you want and it's not going to do any good. You're going to need Job to pray for you. You know, the one you've been picking on as being that terrible hypocrite with all the secret sins. And so Elihu is saying, I am not going to make you afraid. Look at, I'm just a young man. I've, I've held my peace. I really don't even belong in the company of you great men, but here I am. And so I'm answering your request that you made that you couldn't deal with someone as fearful as God. I'm, I'm here. And so we have that introduction of Elihu reasoning with Job that I'm about to share some things with you. They're going to be clear. They're going to be true. They're going to be according to the uprightness of my heart. You need them. Listen. So we come to section 2, verses 8 through 13. I read the section to you. Surely... Thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words, saying, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me, he counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks, he marketh all my paths. Behold, in this thou art not just, I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Now look at this 8 through 13 again. Verse 8 is Elihu speaking. Surely thou, Job, I've heard you talking for the 29 chapters, and I've heard the voice of your words. So that's Elihu in verse 8. Then verses 9 down through 11 are Job's words that Elihu is summarizing to show what he's been actually saying. And then verses 12 through 13 are Elihu again. Uh, But now Elihu is answering Job. Verses 9 through 11 are Job, are Elihu telling us what Job had been saying. Verse 8, Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words. And as you read through the book of Job in chapters 3 through 29, you get to hear a lot from Job's mouth, and he deteriorates in uh, his proper response to these negative events in his life. Now, Job, I've heard you say that you are clean without transgression, that you're innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. That's verse 9. And... Job got pushed to making statements like that, even though when you read all 29 chapters, Job knew he was a sinner. Job knew he needed a Redeemer. For those of you that like Job 19, verses 25 through 27, 
But he did get a little carried away that the way he was being treated by God was not appropriate for his life. Because he hadn't read about anybody getting treated as badly as he was, and he knew that he was a righteous man in comparison to them. Verse 10, Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. This is Job charging God that he's just nitpicking and looking to find something wrong in his life so that he can jump on him. Elihu has heard these words and is stating them back to Job to let Job know just how wild he did get in some of the things he said. There's so much here that could be used for a speech class or for rhetoric to understand how you've got to take a person's words and expose them for the foolish things that they've said, but you know, that's for another time and study. Verse 11, Elihu quoting Job, He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. He's got me locked up. He watches everything that I do. And it's said in a way of blaming God for being extra picky and critical, negative, and judgmental on poor Job's life. Behold, comes back verse 12, and we love Job 33.12. If you've got to look at all 42 chapters of Job and pick the best verse, you pick Job 33.12. There's a lot of good verses in Job, especially in the latter third of the book. But Job 33.12 is wonderful. It explains the book and it gives us a real lesson for our own lives. Behold, Elihu is now speaking directly to Job for those wild things that he said that Elihu has summarized in the three previous verses, 9 through 11. Behold, Job, in this thou art not just. Those things that I've just reminded you of what you said, you are not just in talking that way. I will answer thee. I have an answer and I rebuke you and correct you. God is greater than man. God is greater than man, and you should not be defending yourself, excusing, justifying yourself, but humbling yourself under His greatness because He's your sovereign Creator and the providential governor and ruler of your life. He can do whatever He wants with you. Oh, if we would remember this. When circumstances come into our lives, to remember five words, God is greater than man. That is the explanation for the book of Job. This verse is the key to the book, and it's a wonderful five-word summary. Behold. When we get a verse with behold, and we have a few, even in this chapter, behold, it's an interjection that's the imperative of the verb. It takes the verb to behold something, is to look at it and pay attention to it, but it's used as an interjection telling you to do it. Behold. Job, listen to me. In this thou art not just. You shouldn't be talking that way. God is greater than man. Self-justification was over for Job. As he had wanted it, he should justify God instead. You know, when we justify ourselves, are you kidding? Against the Most High God? Against the Holy God of the universe, we would justify ourselves that we don't deserve such and such treatment? He's so far greater than we are one second, one nanosecond. In His presence will reveal the distance between Him and us in greatness, the distance between Him and us in glory, the distance between Him and us in holiness, in righteousness. Let's always justify God. If there's one thing that our church needs to be known for, and that I want to be known for, God is always right. Rule number two. If you have any questions... See rule number one. God is always right. And God is greater than man. And He can do whatever He wants to any of His creatures. He's the potter and we are the clay, as the Bible says. And you know we could turn to verses right here, but then we would end up with an afternoon service. God is greater than man. And can do whatever He chose to do to Job or to you. We should remember this at all times to shut our mouths when affliction comes. We always deserve worse than He ever gives us. And He can give us whatever He wants because He's God. He's the Creator, Jehovah God of the Bible. He's the potter and we are the clay. Verse 13. Why? Job, 
Why dost thou strive against him? Why are you fighting your circumstances and fighting God? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. I love this verse. I love serving a God, and I am thankful He revealed Himself to me in my late teenage years that He doesn't give an account of Himself to anyone. He does whatever He wants. The least and last persons, beings in the universe that He would give an account of Himself to are you and me. If He was going to give an account of Himself, it might be the angels. It might be the seraphim. It might be the four beasts. But to us, forget it. You know, Elihu goes on and says some other wonderful things about God that we do not add to God by our righteousness, nor do, nor do we take away from Him by our wickedness. He is independently happy and perfectly content in him of Himself without us. We can't hurt Him. We can hurt others, but not Him in the sense that He's speaking of His sovereign government of a human life right here. Why dost thou strive against Him? Job, stop fighting. Let us never blame God. Let it never be said, no matter what you lose or who you lose or how many you lose, that you blame God for any of it. He has a right to do with anything you have as His own because it's not yours. You are not even yours. You've been made and you've been saved. You've been bought by the blood of His only Son. You are not even yours. What? Know ye not? 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 that ye have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Though God does not give a full account of His ways to any demanding man, He is faithful and kind, as we're about to see in the third section. But before we go there, does it say anywhere in the Bible that we should not even question God and that God is above questioning? He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the world, and none can stay His hand. No one can stop God and what He wants to do in your life, nor ask, what doest thou? The Bible wants us to know that, and I love that about our Bible. This, is the, this, is not, this verse here is not the verse that the Lord primarily used for me in a doctrinal controversy in 1984, he used Romans 9, 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? I was dealing with a man who believed that men resisted the will of God when they sinned. I said, no, they don't. They're fulfilling the will of God when they sin. You need to learn that there's two wills of God in the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29. I love that verse because the Apostle Paul knew that the question would pop up by God's treatment of Pharaoh. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? How can God find fault with Pharaoh if he's fulfilling his will? What's the answer? You misunderstood me and I've painted God more deeply red than he should be. No. The answer is, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made us thus? Why hast thou made me thus? Why did you make me this way? Why did you make me without hands? Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Let the potsherds of the earth strive with the other potsherds, but don't strive against God. That is what Isaiah 45 says. Don't argue with God. You can go ahead and argue with other broken pieces of pottery, but don't argue with God. Thank you, Lord. Do you love this God? None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? He likes to write these kind of things about himself. He giveth not account of any of his matters. I love that. It changed my life. It changed other lives that are sitting here today with me. There's no need or right for more explanation. The chapter should end. The book should end. God is greater than man, and He doesn't owe you any explanation, buddy. But God is so kind and such a wonderful, loving, heavenly Father. Eli, who is going to go on and explain a bunch of stuff He does to help men, 
get out of the trouble Job was in. See, Job was still in the trouble because Job hadn't been good. Once the trial started, Job started doing too much of this, and the Lord left it on him. If we went over to Job 36, Elihu is going to explain, Job, you could have been back at your table with your whole family eating all the good stuff you used to eat if you would have humbled yourself. Because you have opened your mouth and are talking like a wicked man, you had better be very careful because God is about to take your life. But Elihu is so good, he has now justified God, put Job in his place, and he says, Job, this being that we're, that we're dealing with, this God, the God of heaven, your creator, your Lord, though he doesn't give an account of his matters, I'm going to give you a little bit of accounting. I'm going to tell you a few things that he does with men. And he does these things to help them and to keep them back from the pit and to keep them from dying. Are you putting all this together? Job, if you would just grasp this stuff and repent, you'll be okay. So we go to section 3, which is verses 14 down through verse 18, 14 to 18. Okay, here goes Elihu. Now God does not give an account of any of his matters. No one can say, what are you doing? And God answer. But God explains some of the things he does on his own initiative through Elihu. Verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed. Then he openeth the ears of men, and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose, and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit, and his life from perishing by the sword. So there's a salvation in God helping men by something he does at night. God speaks once, yea, twice. Let's be thankful for that one right there. God has not just addressed you once in your life about following Him and being a dedicated, consecrated, sold-out Christian. He keeps saying it to you. He keeps addressing you. It is a tremendous blessing that God speaks once and twice, and it doesn't mean that He doesn't speak three times. He speaks many times. I'm just not going to turn you to all those verses to show you that in the Bible. But the point is, God does reveal His will to you, and He repeats Himself if you would just pay attention, Job. God is gracious and kind to men, especially His children, in speaking to them. Precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line. Line upon line is how God continually speaks to us. Peter said, as long as I am alive, one of the great apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will dedicate myself to reminding you of these things, though you be presently established in the truth. Why will we not listen to God speaking? Why do we have to feel Him chastening us? Why does chastening get our attention more than preaching? Why does getting sick or having some severe trouble in your family or your life work better than preaching. Elihu starts out with preaching. But it's from God. It's actually God talking to him rather than a preacher. The preacher's coming up as the third blessing of God to, to men. When God speaks to men, and God had been speaking to Job because Job described his dreams. Chapter 4, chapter 7, there's description of the dreams that Job had, and he said, they terrify me. Well, that's not a very good answer to God. If God's speaking to you, forget the terror and do what He says. God deals privately or secretly with men apart from His ministers. Verses 14 through 18, God deals privately with men, secretly with men, to teach them. Verse 15 describes it this way in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men in slumberings upon the bed. God often spoke to men back in the day of Job before his full written revelation was given. Dreams continued until Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. The last time the word dream is in the Bible is Acts 2.17. 
The last time the word dreams is in the Bible is the same verse, Acts 2.17. Abraham, Isaac, Pharaoh, Joseph, Abimelech, Solomon, Nebuchadnezzar, dreams, dreams, and more dreams. Because that's how God communicated when there wasn't a Bible. And why did He communicate in most of those cases? To hold men back from pride and to keep them from sinning so that He wouldn't have to judge them. Because God is good. In spite of the fact He doesn't owe you an explanation for anything. But He chooses to explain some of His ways. And the, the reason I'm dealing, giving this to you today is that we'll be more attentive to God speaking to us. I just listed a whole bunch of names. It extends all the way to Pilate's wife. Remember Pilate's wife being convicted and condemned by a dream about the Lord Jesus Christ. Dreams have been discussed in this book. Dreams occurred until after Pentecost. And then we have something far better. Who needs a dream when the Bible is better than God's voice while you're fully awake in the presence of Jesus, James and John? The more sure word of prophecy. We do not put credence in dreams after Pentecost. As many have gone astray. I've had people over the last 31 years of my life try to tell me about their dreams. I don't care. I try to look a little tiny bit interested and let them get it out a little bit and then tell them so. How do you know it wasn't what you ate on your pizza last night? Did you have anchovies in the last 24 hours? Who cares about your dream? God doesn't speak by dreams anymore. The gift of knowledge and the word of knowledge and those apostolic ways of revealing His will to men have gone away. We have something far better than dreams. You, we read this morning from Jeremiah 23 where Jeremiah said, For God, the man that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. But where's a real preacher? Where's a real preacher that will thunder away with my word? Because the difference between my word and a dream is like the chaff to the wheat. So we don't put any credence in dreams after Pentecost, and many have gone astray with their dreams. God doesn't reveal truth that way any longer. How would you distinguish His revelations from your own idiotic dreams? Are you able to categorize them that way? Can you wake up in the morning and say, dreams 1, 2, 3, 5, and 6 were mine, but dream number 4 was, it was from the Lord. They're just all a bunch of junk. Dreams. Is there a better time than at night to commune with God in your own spirit? No. You are free from all distractions of any kind to talk to God most intimately and to hear Him talk to you. Now I will show you a few verses because it ties in so well with the second point from this morning's sermon about having personal devotions with the Lord. One of the times in which you should commune with the Lord is when you're in bed. Psalm 4, 4, David said, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Psalm 16 and verse 7 puts it this way from David's pen. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. 17 and verse 3. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. This is David speaking. And we could go on and share more with you. David loved the night as a time to commune with himself, talk to his spirit, and to communicate with the Lord and have the Lord communicate to him. We do not believe in dreams. I don't care what you dreamed last night or any night of your life. But do you have a conscience that gets pricked at night? Do you have a conscience that the Lord, when all the distractions are away and you're thinking to yourself and you're talking to the Lord and you're communing with your own soul upon your bed and you're being still and you're standing in awe and not sinning, and there's there's not even a spouse, there's no children, there's no noise, there's no computer, it's just quiet, it's dark, you can't see anything, you're cuddled, you're huddled in your bed, and you're talking to the Lord, and your conscience, I was wrong today, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to do what I said today, I'm going to do tomorrow, I'm not going to do it. And your conscience, this is not what Elihu was teaching Job. 
Elihu was telling Job, God has spoken to you once, He's spoken to you twice, and men don't perceive it. God's been addressing you. But I want to convict us that we want to be receptive for God speaking to us by what's called the candle of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, and that is our conscience. During the night, God is able to open the ears of men and seal their instruction. Sometimes you have got thoughts during the night were so, so noble and so good, consistent with God's Word. And as long as it's consistent with God's Word, then it is something you can embrace. If it's something different from God's Word, then we're wondering if you're Joseph Smith and you want to start a new denomination or sect or religion like the Mormons. He openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction. God is able to open your ears, move your conscience, quicken your spirit, help you communicate with yourself, convict you, just like he opened the heart of Lydia. You know, that was during the daytime when Lydia was there and Paul came to where prayer was wont to be made at the riverside and Paul began speaking and the Lord opened her heart to attend to everything that Paul said. Some, the Lord just brought a change over her and the Lord can bring a change over us. God has a candle in all men and it is one of His lights of revelation. Jesus convicted consciences in John chapter 8 of the men that took the woman in adultery. He said, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Do you know how effective that is to get your conscience? He stooped down, wrote in the sand, dirt, stood back up, and everybody had disappeared. And he said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? I have none. Neither do I accuse thee. Go and sin no more. But notice, he got their consciences. The Apostle Paul said that he preached in such a way that he laid the truth out on a table. He just presented the truth plainly. He didn't try to varnish it. He didn't try to make it eloquent. He didn't try to make it impressive or pleasing to men, but commending it to every man's conscience in the sight of the Lord. He just laid it out there because a conscience that's been enlightened by, been enlightened by the Lord, that's truly the candle of the Lord and a born-again child of God, will respond to the gospel. God teaches our spirits and our subconscious. In Psalm 51 and verse 10, in Psalm, here's what David said. Psalm 51 and verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God is able to improve our cast down spirits and open it back up to Him. But men can sear their consciences. If we sin against our conscience enough, our conscience gets weaker and weaker. It is as if we seared it with a hot iron so it's no longer sensitive. Lord, help us from that. That He may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. Why does God ever give us a conscience? Why does God ever move our conscience? Why does God move our spirit? Why did God give Job dreams? Verse 17 tells us that He may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. That's why He does it. And verse 18 goes on to explain that's how He keeps back His soul from the pit and His life from perishing by the sword. God spoke to men. Abimelech, that woman you just took into your harem is another man's wife. He keepeth back His soul from the pit and His life from perishing by the sword. You know... Poor Mrs. Pilate. She came to Pilate and said, have nothing to do with this man. I've had a terrible dream this night because of him. And he went right ahead against that. The Lord speaks once, the Lord speaks twice, and man perceiveth it not, that it was a lesson from the Most High God. You know, now we have a Bible that tells us all about Jesus Christ, which didn't exist in the days of Pilate and his wife. The pit in Scripture generally means death. Much elaboration could go into this word pit, but if you look at the verse and see the, the combined two clauses, verse 18 says, He keepeth back his soul from the pit, and the corresponding clause is, and his life from perishing by the sword. So it's talking about dying. Dying either by your enemies, dying by the magistrate, or dying by God's judgment. God sends messages in that time by dreams while a man was deeply in sleep or slumbering, and he sends it to us, private instruction, by our consciences. 
We all have been smitten by our consciences. All of us have been told that is not right. We have been told by our consciences, you are not living all out for the Lord. You are cheating. You are not giving me your whole self. And it's a very effective time at night to ask the Lord to reveal those things to you. To tell the Lord how much you love Him. To say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's how David prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And so this is how God can protect a man. And so He speaks to him in the night. We go to the next way in which God helps men. And that's in verses 19 down through 22. He is chastened also. Notice that word also. When you see an also, there are some things being added up or two things being compared. He is chastened also. So God spoke to men by dreams and He speaks to us by conscience, privately helping us to stay away from sin and to keep us from pride so that He won't have to judge us. How loving! How wonderful! Though He gives no account of Himself to any man, he does explain some of his ways of operation. Verse 19, He is chastened also with pain upon his bed, like Job, and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, like David in Psalm 51, who says he's broken his bones, so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. The best of food is no longer desirable. In fact, you hate it. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen. He gets super skinny, gaunt, and his skin is just hanging on bones. And his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. He's about to die. And this is the second way that Elihu explains to Job that God sometimes deals with men to get their attention. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I know there are people in here who have had life-threatening situations physically that got your attention. I know about those things. I wouldn't have been in the ministry when I went into the ministry without some life-threatening events. But it gets our attention. We had a sister that we have prayed out of cancer. She wanted to be closer to the Lord. And the Lord used that. Because it, look at the perspective. All the things of life, all the good things of eating good food, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to eat anything. And they lose weight. I received a letter this past week of a woman in a marriage that in two months lost 33 pounds because of the unhappiness in her marriage. And so the Lord can do this and... I don't need to spend much time on this because it's been covered under afflictions and suffering preached to you in the last couple of months. And it certainly described Job's case. And why does God do this? When we look at it, He's chastened with pain on His bed. Verse 19, His life abhors bread and His soul dainty meat. Verse 21, His flesh is consumed away. He's just rotting. Yea, He he knows that death is at the door. He knows that His mortality is very real. And he is about to lose this life. And why does God do that? Because as he explained, under help number one, it's to keep man back from pride and sin. Now, help number three, which is very closely in connection with this. At about this time when you're about to die, it would be very nice if somebody helpful visited you. And you know, when people are in the room and they're talking about all the fun things that they're doing as soon as they leave the hospital, they're going to go to this restaurant and they're going to go do this and they're going to go do that while you're lying there at death's door, those are miserable comforters. Those are the ones that sing songs to a heavy heart. This person's about to die and they would like some commiseration and explanation and so along comes the rare person, should be all pastors, should be, could be, good church members, good Christians that are able to do the following things. And so we read verses 23 through 26. If there be a messenger with him, this man that is sick and about to die, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, 
Then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. And this is the case with Job, and it happened with Job, just as described here, and the rare speaker was Elihu himself in this particular case. If a man's about to die, he needs to hear this kind of a message, and it's rare. If he has a messenger there to help him, an interpreter, one that can explain the circumstances, one among a thousand, because there's so few of them, to show unto man his uprightness. We make the choice of his uprightness to be God's uprightness, because that is what Elihu has purposed to explain in this chapter. And the last thing Job needed was an explanation of his uprightness. He had already declared his uprightness. And Elihu was correcting it. So there needs to be someone there that can interpret the events and say, God is greater than man. He doesn't give an account of any of his manners, his matters or methods to you. This is God dealing with you. Submit and cheerfully bear it. And show God is upright in all that He does. Verse 24, It is assumed by the word then. Then He is gracious unto Him. That is, this man repents and God is gracious unto Him. You know, what kind of grace can a minister actually give? Not very much compared to God. And it's going to go on to describe God hearing this man's prayer and God establishing this man and showing him his face and causing joy in the once severely afflicted patient. Verse 24, Then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. God is gracious to everyone that repents, like we learned on Wednesday evening, and a minister can say, God is just in all that He does to you. This sickness and affliction that He's brought on you is from His hand. He is good and right and upright in all that He does. You are not going to die. You have repented. You have humbled yourself before this God. I have found a ransom. There is someone that has paid for all your sins. What you're worried about is you get sicker and sicker and think that you are going to die, that you are under the judgment of God. You are not under His judgment. He has a multitude of reasons why He brings these afflictions into your life. I have found a ransom for you. You have humbled yourself. You will recover. Now listen, brethren, we know that all men don't recover. We know that all don't recover. But those that don't recover, God gives them equal or greater grace in their hearts and their minds in order to be able to bear their affliction like He did the Apostle Paul. It would be better. It would be better to be given a complete and whole fat soul with a broken down body that does not recover than to be given a new body and to be given a lean soul. But this particular case sounds so positive because it's about Job. And Elihu is the messenger. Verse 25, His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. You know, that can be literal and physical like it was with Job. It can be metaphorical for us because we're fat and happy and like a child in our hearts when the Lord deals with us after we repent and humble ourselves before His affliction. He shall pray unto God. This patient shall pray unto God and He will be favorable unto him and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. He will confirm in that man's heart that he is righteous, that he's not going to hell, that God approves of his life because he has repented of barking against God and of any pride that he has. So these four verses, 23 through 26, are describing the third way in which God deals with men, and that's through a minister that is an interpreter and explains what's happening in his life to show that God is right, and when this man repents, he is comforted and confirmed that he that God loves him, that he is righteous, that there's been a ransom provided for him, and he need not fear or worry. And in some cases, like in the case of Job, 
he is restored physically and finds much favor in his relationship with the Lord again. I mean, for 29 chapters, Job and God did not have a favorable relationship. We get to verses 27 and 28. The fourth way that God deals with men. He looketh upon men. And this should always be remembered. When something bad happens in your life and you're considering your adversity, make sure you confess your sins. We should start there. We shouldn't beat ourselves with the fact, but we should start with the confession of sin. Verse 27, He looketh upon men. God is always watching us. And if any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, This is a true prayer of confession. Here's the response from God, verse 28. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. There is such a huge difference that can be made by us confessing our sins. It's huge. It's the R factor from Wednesday evening. It is repentance. You have altogether cleared yourself in this matter. The Apostle Paul could tell the church at Corinth. And look what God does. In that 28th verse, He will deliver His soul from going into the pit. You will not die. If we look at it literally, you will not be destroyed and made miserable. If we look at it metaphorically, it says His life shall see the light, the abundant life. I tried to end Wednesday evening by the slides saying the abundant life is just around the corner based on the R factor of repentance. I love these two verses. We have New Testament counterparts for these verses. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love verse 27, and I tried to show you on Wednesday evening, and I have preached this before, three steps to proper confession. I have sinned. You made the laws. I broke your laws. That's what sin is. 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. You made the laws. I rebelled and broke them. I have sinned. I'm wrong. You're right. Second, and I perverted that which was right. The rules that you gave us, The law that you gave us, the commandments that you have given us, they are right. They are holy, noble, and righteous because you made them, and they are the best for us. If we would keep your commandments, we would have the best life possible. But I took what you gave to us that is right and good, and I perverted it. My way of doing things is perverse. Your way of doing things is right. Do you see how much you're... I know it's short here, but if you think about these words, it's really coming clean with the Lord. And the third statement is, and it profited me not. I was miserable when I went my way. The belly of the fish was miserable for me. You know, Jonah could say, and, and every one of you that's a sinner and old enough to be conscious of what I'm saying right now, you know that sin does not work. Sin does not bring you happiness. The men of this church that are older and we're like the prodigal in their younger days. We have talked about it. Of how miserable and lonely, frustrated that we were. Though we were doing the things the world sells us as making a person happy. Thank you, Lord. He looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned, and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. If we say those three things to the Lord, He will deliver His soul from going into the pit and his life shall see the light. So Job, if I haven't made any sense to you in God's dreams that he has sent you, or the afflictions of you crying on your bed, or of the messenger that I have given you as Elihu, a rare man and an interpreter, then just confess your sins. Because he was speaking too much. Verse 29 and 30 tell us these are not rare. Lo, all these things worketh God oft times with man. Lo, That's another word, another interjection like behold. Look at this and think about it. Let this get your attention. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit to be enlightened with the light of the living. And that is what we want walking out of here today. Four things. God speaks in dreams to men of that era and he speaks to us by our conscience. Two, he afflicts us with physical problems and it gets our attention. And if we would humble ourselves 
and willingly accept them and cheerfully endure them. They'll bear their righteous fruit and either be lifted or He'll give us grace to overcome them. Three, He sends messengers or interpreters, preachers, to give us a word of explanation as to why these things are happening in our lives. And if we humble and repent ourselves, He will declare that there's been a ransom found. Don't worry, you're not going to hell. This is just a little bit of temporary affliction that He's brought in your life to get your attention because He loves you. He wants to teach you patience. He wants to give you experience. And He wants to teach you hope. Four, He's always watching us. And if we will repent of our sins and repent thoroughly and appropriately, He will have mercy upon us and embrace us. And like I asked on Wednesday evening, how fast does God run? How many minutes, hours, days, or years are there between verses 27 and 28? He is so merciful. Look at David. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord hath put away thy sin, all in one verse, to remind us of how fast the Lord runs. If we, the prodigal, will humble ourselves as that 27th verse. You know, we can't say, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me a hired servant. But we can say this right here. What I have done in my marriage, what I have done in my soul, the bitterness that I've harbored, what I've done in the job, what I've done with pornography, I don't care what sin you want to put into it, I have sinned. You made the rules, and I broke them. I perverted the right way of doing things because I'm perverse and you are right. And it did not profit me. It frustrated me and hurt me and vexed me. He'll forgive. And he oftentimes does these four things. We don't get dreams, but we do have a conscience. And God does speak to us by our conscience. And I hope that we will be attentive to our consciences, that we will train our consciences. And I would suggest that Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 and the commentary that was there for it on our website might be helpful to you to understand more about that candle of the Lord in each of us. Why does God do these four things? To bring back his soul from the pit, from dying, to be enlightened with the light of the living. There were times David thought he was going to die for sure. And the Lord saved him from them, and David died in a good old age at 70 years of age, but he thought that it was over. It was curtains for him a number of times during his life. And so Elihu finishes this chapter by saying, Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I will speak. I have some more things to say, but just think about what I just laid on you. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not... If you don't have anything to say, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, and I shall teach thee some wisdom. And he just taught us some wisdom. There are four things that God oftentimes does with men, and we want to be ready for them all. We want to listen to our conscience. We want to train our conscience and let it be the candle of the Lord reminding us of what is right. The closer you are to the Lord, the more holy life that you're living, the more of the Holy Spirit you have, the more prayer you're making, your conscience will be louder. The more you obey it, the louder it gets. The less you obey it, it becomes cauterized and, and seared and doesn't speak very loudly. We want to be attentive to the Lord speaking privately in us. That is by devotional time. Don't let this coming week run away from you. It, it runs away from all of us. When you're afflicted, when you're afflicted on that bed, examine yourself and see if there's anything that the Lord needs to teach you. If you need to repent of sins, then repent of them. If it's just that He needs you to be cheerful, He wants to teach you how to be cheerful under negative events, then choose to be cheerful and tell Him, I don't deserve good health. I deserve what I'm getting. The Lord is righteous in all His ways. He is not, I'm not questioning you at all, Lord. Just show me the lesson that you want me to learn, and I want to learn it. Responding that way to affliction. Third, when you hear a man and an interpreter appreciate the message from God's Word, because it is so rare for God to send a man like Elihu to a man like Job, for Job the older man and the very wise man to hear the truth from a very young man, to be thankful for it and to repent 
and to love and embrace the message that there is a ransom that has been paid. And when the devil or our own nature wants to condemn us while we're afflicted in a bed of sickness, that we're going to go to hell and that God doesn't love us and that I have so many sins that God can't love me and all that kind of stuff, you need a minister that will tell you, I have found a ransom. Deliver him from going to the pit. Four, let's confess our sins boldly, quickly, immediately, whenever you sin. God is not like the rest of us. You can confess the same sin eight times between now and when you go to bed tonight and don't start thinking statistically or how other people in the church would not forgive you if you wronged them eight times between now and you went to bed tonight. God is different. His ways and His thoughts are higher than ours. They're just like these. So confess your sin and God will forgive you and restore you and bless you with the abundant life. He oftentimes does these things with men to bring back our souls from the pit. You know, some of you younger ones don't know much about the pit. You're going to find out about it. And you've been taught when you were young. I hope you'll remember it. And that you'll remember God oftentimes does these things. And the best way is to humble yourself under His hand. God is greater than man. Cheerfully endure what He sends you because it's for good reasons, for His glory. Be thankful for every message that God gives you, even if it tires you, even if it's not well presented. And know that He'll always forgive those who humble themselves and repent. And He can restore your life to the land of the living. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for Job chapter 33.